0: coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. Not only is the UK leaving the Eurozone, they're creating their own internet, this time with more surveillance. Then we've got the details of the latest WannaCry wannabe that may be infecting a Windows server near you. Plus, some top tips on how to get recruited by the Israeli NSA. Then we've got your fantastic feedback, a jam-packed roundup, and so much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This episode was streamed live on May 30th, 2017, and is brought to you by our three fine sponsors DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. My name is Wes, and joining me this week is my BSD bestie. Yes, that's right. It's Dan. Welcome to the show, Dan.
1: Hello, Wes. Welcome to the Great White North.
0: Oh, thank you. Yeah, look, things look a little bit different on your end. I don't see a rack. I don't see a Tetris lamp. What's going on? I am broadcasting to you from
1: Ottawa, oh. in between running PG Con last week and BSG CAN next week. Boy, you must be a busy beaver up there. This is my childhood home. I'm staying at my parents' place. Oh,
0: that's awesome. That must be nice. You get to do some organizing and, uh, you know, visit the folks.
1: Yes. Yes, I do.
0: Great! Anything else new for you? How was PGCon?
1: PGCon was very good. It was wonderful. Um, the charity auction raised above raised five hundred and one dollars. Nice. So that should be an easily attainable uh, goal for BSD Can's charity
0: auction. Totally.
1: The uh, basically we sell silly stuff. Um, I sold uh, someone's badge that they left behind. <laughs> Um, so it's really just like s- a bunch of fun, yeah. It's 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 very lighthearted, and all the proceeds go to the Ottawa Mission, which is a local charity oh, not far sweet. from the venue. Yeah. Um, but on a personal side, what was new this week? Uh, I started working on my Let's, Let's Encrypt solution, and only today at lunchtime did I get my. Remote DNS update, NS update, so I can do dynamic updating of NS DNS01 validation for Let's Encrypt.
0: Oh, I got that fancy. working.
1: Nice. I had a problem last night with a key. I was updating it while watching game one of the NHL oh. series. And let me think. That's really about it. Been kind of busy with PG Cons. Oh, yeah. Not a lot accomplished outside of that.
0: I can imagine so. On my end, uh I've moved apartments, so I'm now in a new location. Oh, yeah. Sadly, no internet just yet. I did end up like um in the States Comcast does this thing or Xfinity. They have a like a shared Wi-Fi mm-hmm. program and mm-hmm. I have a an account. So I was able to set up a terribly, terribly slow system where I have I bought a new Unify access point and then I had mm-hmm. another router and I was able to make that a client and then bridge it over to the Unify so that I could have a more reliable Wi-Fi over the sketchy Wi-Fi. Uh, and then I had yeah. I did that again where I was tethering on my phone. So I had Wi-Fi hotspot on my phone being picked up by a different yeah. AP, then over Ethernet to my actual AP. It's all terrible. I'm really looking forward to being civilized again. Hopefully next so, week I will actually have real Internet.
1: So that, that service that you're picking up is just from a WAP on a pole outside the house or something? Or?
0: Uh, it's um for the... I'm either using the tethering on my phone, which you know, then I pay for, um, yeah. or uh, if you have a Comcast account, they have a service where on select modems, if you're running it, it then broadcasts a secondary mm-hmm. um, AP that if you mm-hmm. have an account, you can then use. Unfortunately, it's a bit far away from my uh, apartment, it seems like, so the speeds yeah. are in the uh, KB per second most of the time.
1: Yeah, I, I know that in my my apartment I can see dozens of apps, a lot lot for um Comcast and a lot from for Verizon. Yeah, yeah, they're just all over the place.
0: So it's nice to be here in the studio where we've got uh, you yes. know, real internet and we can talk over here. Yes, it's awesome. So speaking of uh, speaking of internet, I guess we should get right into the uh, the top oh, yes. of our show. What we do, do you have, have a for show. us?
1: We do have a show. Well, um. The first thing that I wanted to talk about was how government, uh, government-sponsored programs to train people to be good at cyber hacking actually improves the cyber intelligence industry. And the case in point is Israel. And what was the unit number? Unit 8200, which is the equivalent of the USA's NSA, by the way. I drove by Canada's equivalent to that, which I think is CSIS, or maybe the GCHQ, Government Communications Security, something. I drove by their new building the other day, um, and what Israel is doing to focus on national security is it's been creating fertile grounds for many former members of its famed intelligence agency to take their cyber sleuthing and anti-hacking skills to the private sector. So this 8200 unit traces its uh, origins back to just after World War II. And what this one unit happens to do is, it's it's a teammate for example, Uh, 8200, Unit 8200, people basically get recruited, they start working there, and then they go into the real world and start creating companies, which then contribute to the uh, intelligence community. Now, by intelligence community, I don't mean uh, secret intelligence. I mean cyber intelligence, as in places that are trying to improve things for all of us. Now... An example of that is Team 8, which is an Israeli company, which was founded by veterans from the intelligence agency, and it's part think tank, part incubator, and part venture um, creation foundry. Now, it develops cybersecurity startups from the ground up. And prior to co-founding Team 8, uh, Zafir was the chief of Unit 8200. That's this um, Team 8 company that we're talking about. So, how, if you're a newbie and you want to start uh, working for these guys, how do you wind up um, um, on, in Unit 8200? Right. Well, that's easy. You just be good and you stand out. So, potential candidates, basically, they start by identifying talent in Israel as early as high school. So candidates are screened based on grades and recommendations from their schools. Potential candidates are taken for a half day experience at a separate location where they take tests and engage in simulations of various kinds. I want to know what they're doing. I really do. They they don't say, but basically the tests are there to gauge the candidate's ability to learn new things very quickly, which is basically what you have to do when you're um, responding uh, to cyber attacks. Now, The next stage includes an interview as well as more simulations. And at the end of it, there are different skill sets and professions within the unit. And based on the tests and simulations, the majority of people do not pass. But they couldn't uh, specify the exact nature of the operations that the unit carries out. But the Financial Times said that the unit winds up snooping on... Various people living in the West Bank or in naval and air blockades in the Gaza Strip. But they also said that the unit was a collaboration between the U.S. and Israel that took out Iranian centrifuges spinning to purify uranium. Iranian centrifuges purifying uranium. Now, that was uh, Stuxnet, wasn't it? Operation Stuxnet?
0: Yes, I believe so.
1: And that, if you haven't read anything about that, You really have to look into it because –
0: Or possibly watch old episodes of this program.
1: Yes. It did get covered. And the fascinating thing that I learned about that is the easiest way to kill a centrifuge is you spin it up really quickly and then you slow it down and then you spin it up and you slow it down.
0: I know that whole thing was fascinating just from the like – especially in our industry and the the days of virtualization and containers, mm-hmm. it's rare that mm-hmm. you, know, you end up interfacing with real hardware. And so seeing this kind of like software explicitly designed to break things in the real world is fascinating. Yep.
1: I know. I, I remember reading about listening about Stuxnet and it was very clever, exceedingly mm-hmm. clever as to what they did. Basically the programs lied. They sat between the, uh, centrifuges and the data output, and they lied about what was going on. Yes, and right. All, all in the meantime, they were just k- k- killing the centrifuges, which, if you want to take something down, that seems to be the easiest yeah, way to exactly. do it. If, if you if you just went in and destroyed them all, that they would have just started over. But here, you think you think you're getting somewhere successful, and it turns out you're not.
0: Right. Slow people down the longest, make them keep mm-hmm. guessing.
1: Mm-hmm. Um. So now, continuing on with what they say here in the story, in an industry where one of the biggest problems companies face is a shortage of talent, having access to an abundance of skilled individuals is an advantage to Israeli cybersecurity startups. And I've heard of more than one or two, and later on there's a list. And I've heard of at least two or three of them, and if I've heard of them, they must be big. Every year, the company starts by choosing an area of cybersecurity. Now, we're talking about teammate again. Every year, teammate starts by choosing an area of cybersecurity they want a company to address from cloud to mobile or enterprise after having conversations with um, industry stakeholders. And then basically, they spend a few months uh, identifying the problem, and if it's big enough and sophisticated enough the project moves on to the next stage, which they call ideation. And this is where resources are examined to identify how they can create a more efficient solution. And at the end, the project goes to the validation stage before a company is set up. So, Teammate is actually setting up companies to deal with specific areas of cybersecurity. And I found that to be different from what I thought would have been happening. I would have thought they would have had companies saying, hey, listen, uh, we're really good at what we do, so we're going to set up this company and do this. But they're going the other way around, where they're saying, trying to find a problem, identify it, and then creating a company just to deal with that particular type of problem. Yeah, it's kind of different than
0: the way, at least the defense industry and the things we see here in the U.S. a lot of the time.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So... One of the companies that
1: came out of Team 8 was Elusive Networks, I-L-L-U-S-I-V. Have you heard of them? Yeah, I have a little bit. They have a nice thing. They use use deception technology to mislead hackers who have breached a network.
0: Okay, yes, that is what it is.
1: So they will create false versions of a company's network to lure the hacker. Once the hacker accesses this alternative reality – Security teams are immediately alerted and the attacker's connection is slowed down but kept alive. This allows a forensic team to investigate what the attacker is doing from the compromised machine, essentially trapping the hacker within the false version of the network. Now, this sounds like a honeypot. Yeah, I was going to say like, the
0: next type. level of honeypot.
1: Yeah, but it, it, it's all set up to look like the network that you would expect.
0: Right, rather than just like an easy SSH target or whatever, this is like they've done the full gamut here to make sure it looks and feels just like the target you expect it to be. Mm -hmm. Wow. Now, Elusive is
1: backed by big companies, which I'm not going to name. And it's raised over 30 million since its founding in 2014. Now, 30 million over three years. Mm, Yeah, 10 million a year. So um, it goes through a bunch of other companies that I talk about. Um, now I thought I had a more interesting bit here at the end, but I've missed it. There it is. Um, when I was first reading this article, I was thinking, well, this isn't very useful. You're training all these people up in the military and then, then they leave and they go somewhere else. But that turns out to be exactly what they, what they want. Um, because while they're, Part of uh, Unit 8200, they're contributing to what their employer there is doing. But at the same time, they're training them up to go out and take jobs in the capitalist market and continue along that way rather than being within the military. And I like it. It's a good good way to wind up training very good individuals that are going to wind up being— um, great contribute providing great contributions to your country later on
0: right and especially in this world of today where you have a lot of contractors involved you know this is maybe one way where the military the state can influence the training programs and you know you can have like requirements for vendors and other things but you're not always quite sure that that's what's being followed or how good that is whereas here you know if you've known that you've trained some people you've sent them out and then you are going to contract with those companies you might have more assurances that these guys actually know what they're doing
1: yeah. I, I agree with that. Um, let me see if I can find that list of companies. Uh, no, I've lost it. Oh, no, I've lost it. I read it somewhere. I'm not even sure it was in this article. It might have been somewhere else. But
0: If we find it, we will certainly add it to the show we notes. We will add it to the show notes. So stay tuned.
1: Now, uh, one thing that I was reading about, uh, about Unit 8200 when I was on Wikipedia, is it was founded in 1952 using primitive surplus American military equipment, and it is responsible for collecting signal intelligence, which is SIGINT, and anyone who's read Tom Clancy knows what SIGINT is, and code decryption Um Basically, it's also referred to the as the ISNU, Israeli SIGINT National Unit, but it's 8200 is what it's known as. Anyway, that's enough of that.
0: This kind yeah. of this is kind of fascinating. Did you have more you wanted to talk about about uh, Unit 8200? No, not on this one. No. Okay, well, great. I thought this was a fascinating find. It was something I, you know, I didn't pick up on the story until I saw it in the show notes. So uh, good on you for finding it, and um, it's a really interesting kind of insight into this world of, you know, secret government operations that you really, yeah. we don't really see that much of. I'm not sure who
1: provided this to us. Whether it came internally or if someone sent sent it in, um, it didn't come through feedback. I know that it might have been one of us that found it.
0: So one thing about this story that really stood out to me was just. You know the level of training, how they're finding people early. They're finding people with these kinds of skills. Um, mm-hmm. And so, if you're thinking about you know about yourself or about your kids or other things, you're thinking like, how can I? You know, what are ways I can help them get these kinds of skills? That leads us right to our first sponsor tonight. That's <laughs> our friends over at DigitalOcean. You know, if you're you're worried, you want your you know you want your kids to become cybersecurity experts. You're interested in cybersecurity, but you don't want to mess up the computers in your host in your house, or you want to be able to set up some honeypots or other systems. You know, obviously lawful, of course. Go check out DigitalOcean. They're cloud computing designed for developers, designed for creatives, designed for hackers, You know, designed for anyone who has a new project. You want to spin it up super quick, under 55 seconds, bang, you can get a new VPS, spin it up, destroy it, whatever you need. DigitalOcean is there to make it easy. So go, go head over to TechSnap or just DigitalOcean.com. You don't even need our name, but you can use our promo code, SnapOcean. That... We'll get you started with a $10 credit and prices over DigitalOcean. Yeah, they start at just $5 a month. What do you get for that $5 a month? Well, you get 512 MB of memory, one core processor, 20 gigs of SSD disk, and a whopping one terabyte of transfer. Now, what can you do with this? Pretty much whatever you want. That's the amazing thing. They use full, real KVM. Virtualization, right? So this isn't some OpenVZ thing. It isn't a container. You get a real kernel. You get real hardware abstractions. You can run whatever operating system you want. They've got a bunch of you know supported ones out of the box. They got Fedora, FreeBSD, Ubuntu, pretty much all the standard operating systems that you might want. If you want to go beyond that, there's great tutorials out there for running OpenBSD, running Arch, all those kinds of things. Um, they make it just so easy. And you get all the premium features you expect from a cloud service provider, right? So you get things like monitoring, you get things like load balancing, you get private networking, If you've got two droplets in the same data center. Oh, 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 yeah, you don't pay for that networking. It's so easy. Plus, they've got backups, they've got expandable storage, still SSDs. Yeah, DigitalOcean was one of the first people on that SSD bandwagon. That's why it's all SSDs. At DigitalOcean, plus the pricing you have—you have monthly here, sure. So you know, like that twenty dollars a month one—that's a sweet spot for me. Two gigs memory, two core processor, forty gigs of disk, and three terabytes of transfer. There's a ton that you can do with that. Whether you just need to compile a new kernel, you want to download a bunch of stuff with their super fast internet, and then slowly sync it to your slow home connection, or you know, maybe you just need something hourly. Flip that switch right there. You can see their hourly prices, and that makes it seems like such a steal for three cents an hour. You can have a rig of your dreams or, you know, just just keep scrolling over here. It gets better and better. They've also started introducing high CPU droplets. So if you've got something, you know, you're doing a bunch of transcoding or other, you know, big data workflows where you really need to do some number crunching, something a CPU can do for you, DigitalOcean is the place to be. Plus, one of our favorite things over here about DigitalOcean is their community section. Head on over to the DigitalOcean community. There you'll find a number of awesome guides, how to add a Prometheus dashboard to Grafana and Introduction to Configuration Management, how to use the official DigitalOcean command line client. All of these are great reasons why DigitalOcean is a wonderful place to get started. Not only do you have an instantly spun up VPS you can play with, destroy, test out a new software, (laughs) install whatever you need, you also have tons of great guides. They've got a team of awesome professional editors taking the community's contributions and turning them into some of the best documentation on the internet, So head on over to DigitalOcean.com, use our promo code SNAPOcean, get started, and become a cybersecurity expert in no time. And thank you to the DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. All right, with that, I guess that takes us on to our next story today. A story I got to say, it kind of scares me. What's going on here?
1: It sounds to me like they're overreacting and wanting to surveil everyone and basically control the Internet in order to allegedly catch and monitor terrorists. But it's not going to work because it it just doesn't work. You, 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 by surveilling everyone, you've got so much information, you can't do anything with it. So basically, uh, Theresa May, if I'm correct, she's a Prime Minister of Britain at the moment, she wants to introduce huge regulations that will change the way the internet works, allowing the government to decide what is said online. So basically, I don't know how how much the independent is distorting the actual manifest manifesto that's come out, but that's basically what the headline reads. So this manifesto comes out Soon after the investigatory, sorry, investigatory powers act came into law, that legislation allowed the government to force internet companies to keep records on their customers' browsing histories, as well as giving ministers the power to break apps like WhatsApp so that messages can be read. And I, I can't believe that Britain, of all companies, uh, countries, is doing something like this because. That's just a huge intrusion upon the uh, privacy of of everyone in Britain, not just its citizens but even visitors as well. So the manifesto makes reference to these increased powers, saying that the government will work even harder to ensure that there is no safe place for terrorists to be able to communicate online well it that goes both ways. it also means that nobody is safe to communicate. Online, It means nothing is is safe. And there's plenty of legitimate things that occur online that need to be kept private and confidential. Um, There's all kinds of of, um, support groups uh, and um, mentoring that goes on online that the government has no business being anywhere near. And this is going to put all that kind of stuff in jeopardy no one with, with say, for example, um, uh, an addiction of some kind is going to be seeking help online in what are usually anonymous forums if the government's going to be uh, monitoring it. So jumping back to the safe place, no safe place for terrorists to be able to communicate online, it goes on to say that is apparently a reference in part to its work to encourage technology companies to build backdoors into their encrypted messaging services, which gives the government the ability to read terrorist messages, but also weakens security of everyone else's messages, technology companies are warned. And that's exactly spot on. If you're putting backdoors in something, it's backdoors for everyone. And the politicians should be aware of this, that they should be aware that if the public's communications are backdoored, your communications are going to be backdoored as well. And I remember a while back someone said that if politicians want to impose uh, uh, backdoors on everyone else, they should live a year or two with all their emails, uh, phone conversations, publicly posted. See how they like it. See how they like it. If they're willing to go through that for a year, and they won't. No, certainly not. Anyway, back to this. Yes. So, the laws would also force technology companies to delete anything that a person posted when when they were under 18. Why? Why delete everything that you posted before you were 18? Seems ridiculous. In harnessing the digital revolution, this is what, what the um, – just a second, I want to make sure – In harnessing the digital revolution, we must take steps to protect the vulnerable and give people confidence to use the Internet without fear of abuse, criminality, or exposure to horrific content, the manifesto claims in a section called the safest place to be online. So basically, this manifesto says, we're the ones that know what's safe and what you should and should not see. Sounds like censorship to me if they're deciding what what can be online and not online. So the manifesto also proposes that Internet companies will have to pay a levy, like the one currently paid by gambling firms. Just like with gambling, that money will be used to pay for advertising schemes to tell all people about the dangers of the Internet, in particular being, use, being used to support awareness and preventative activity to counter Internet harms, according to the manifesto. Now, this sounds – does the word nanny state mean anything to anyone? Right. Yeah, exactly. We'll protect you. While we cannot create this framework alone, it is for government, not private companies, to protect the security of people and ensure the fairness of the rules by which people and businesses abide. Nor do we agree that the risks of such an approach outweigh – The potential benefits. Well, of course you wouldn't. But this is just such a terrible idea. Would you vote
0: for this? No, certainly not. Yeah, I mean, it's just kind of it's, it's kind of crazy. And it makes you think that, you know, the people proposing this legislation don't really understand the free speech angles and the community and the history of the Internet and the kind of discourse uh, and the kind of access that we've come to expect from that and how much value that really adds and look, the price of being in a free society i mean especially now i mean there's you know there's just been this terrible uh, terrible attack in manchester and all that so i understand that there's a lot of pressure here you know we want to keep the public safe of course that's that's a justified priority absolutely mm-hmm. yeah but in, you know in some ways you, there are just certain costs to living in a free society and yes i mean like I want to have be able to have private encrypted communications. I understand that that means that, yes, you know, terrorists, evildoers, whatever, they'll be able to do that as well. Uh, I mean, I think that just means, you know, we still need to fund our police forces, we need to fund all the agencies that Mm -hmm. we can to protect us. But at the same time, we need to keep our inherent civil liberties intact.
1: Just because all the terrorists are using car bombs, they're not bombing cars, they're not
0: banning cars, we're not banning cell phones, we're not banning you know clock radios any of those things so it doesn't make sense really to ban to ban the open internet at least in my view
1: no i agree there's there's plenty of existing laws to deal with this There's, there's no need to create new ones
0: right yeah exactly right like a lot of these things are already criminalized we already have the laws in place yes enforcement can be more difficult but sometimes there's just a limit to the you know the amount of things that we can change and and really do that there are just costs you know i understand that if i don't lock my door someone might break into my house and i only go so far into protecting my own goods because they're just you know you have to weigh the balances there yeah it's kind of it's dangerous to see i guess i mean they have an election coming up so we'll see if this is the kind of policy that the british public chooses if this is what they want to go forward it'll be interesting to follow it's it's astounding it's astounding yes exactly ah <sighs> dan why do you bring up these uh really depressing news stories it's not well, your I, fault i know
1: okay well, l- l- let's slightly change the topic during the last ad you talked about you mentioned two words uh it was for DigitalOcean. the ad was for DigitalOcean. did i tell you i spun up a droplet recently for my external nagios no you didn't train.
0: oh tell me more <clears throat>
1: uh a friend of mine loaned me uh um, a jail on his box and that mm-hmm. let me get it going and, and then his box died and uh, we never got back on it so I spun up an, a digital ocean droplet and used the Ansible scripts to get it reinstalled and running nice. and found some bugs in the scripts but, but it's back up and running but I don't have it running at the moment it, it is still there but it, it's, not, it's, it's not powered on
0: Am I to assume this is a free BSD droplet?
1: Uh, yes, it is. FreeBSD 11 with ZFS.
0: Awesome.
1: How did you guess?
0: I wonder how and, well, are your Ansible scripts pretty specific to that?
1: Um, Yeah. Mm-hmm. All of my Ansible scripts are, are mm, let me think. They're sort of tied mostly around packages mm-hmm. and installing files in certain places. So, yeah, most of them would be tied to a FreeBSD setup, yes. Yeah.
0: I know that can be a right. lot of the bigger, you know, the configuration management pains. Is like it's easy enough to get a package installed, but then you're like, mm-hmm. well, I need to add this config file. And, you know, that'll be different if it's from ports or the base system. And it might be different yep. depending on here or there. So that makes sense. Yep. yep.
1: And then the other thing that you mentioned during the ad, you said the word Prometheus. Yes. Uh, yesterday afternoon was Memorial Day. Mm-hmm. And I'm in Canada. It's not Memorial Day up no, here. No, it's not. So I went to the movies in the afternoon at about two o'clock, one o'clock. Excellent! And saw Alien Covenant.
0: Mm -hmm. How was it? That
1: was good. Was it? I liked it. I liked it better than Prometheus.
0: Ah, Excellent. Now we've got the official review from Dan right here in the show. Yes,
1: we do. We're starting a whole new sideshow.
0: Yeah, exactly. The Dan and Wes Movie Hour. You saw it here live, folks. There we go. Yeah, awesome. All right. Well, anything else you'd like to add about the, uh, the depressing mm-hmm. news for the UK internet?
1: Hopefully it's not going to go anywhere.
0: Exactly. Okay. With that, let's jump right over to our next sponsor today. That's our friends over at Ting, the company trying to make mobile that makes sense. You can see it right there on their homepage. The average Ting bill it's just $23 per phone per month. That's kind of crazy. So little backstory by myself. I've just moved to a new apartment and my new apartment I don't have Internet yet. That's dangerous. That's horrible. Especially like, hey, I'm trying to prepare show notes. I'm trying to do research. Hey, I actually have a real job that I'm trying to do as well. Ting makes that so easy because with Ting, you just pay for what you use. Right. So however many minutes, however many messages, however many megabytes, they just tally it up. You fit into some boxes. They say, hey, you use this much. All right. That's what you pay for. Here's our rates. It's so simple and so easy. That's why they say it makes sense because it really does. Makes sense. So I don't use it. You know, I have Wi-Fi. There's Wi-Fi here at the studio. I have Wi-Fi at work. I normally, anyway, have Wi-Fi at home. So normally, you know, my bill is not huge. I use usually less than a gigabyte of data a month. This month, I've already used like, I don't know, two and a half. And it's been like a week and a half. With Ting, that's possible. Any other service provider where you have, you know, early termination fees, you have contracts, you have data caps, and you have like minimums, right? So if I paid for four gigs of data a month, sure, like that's nice. That's a nice allotment of data. But most months, I would never use that. I'm paying for a service I don't need. So this month, my Ting bill, it's going to be larger than most months, but that's easily offset by all the other months. You can get started. Head over to techsnap.ting.com and then go over to the rates page. You'll see what I'm talking about. It's so simple, so straightforward. Lines start at just $6 a month, and then you just pay for what you use. So you go over here, you you know, hey, maybe you use some minutes. You don't use text messages because, you know, you're hip. It's 2017. You don't need text messages. And you use a little bit of data. Boom, your monthly bill, that's just $31 a month. And because lines are just $6 a month, Ting is so flexible. It's really easy. You know, you just want a Ting SIM card to pop into your laptop. You want a Ting SIM card uh, to pop into, you know, just like a flip phone that you keep in the car for camping or long trips or just as a backup if you forget your regular phone or, you know, if something breaks. Ting makes it so easy for that. And not only that, but they have both CDMA and GSM for whichever one might work better in your area. They have no no early termination fees, no contracts, no overage charges, and all the usual features that you've come to expect. Three-way calling, tethering. There's no, like, you get this many data, you know, megabytes of tethering, and then you can't use it anymore, or you have to pay extra. No. On Ting, data is data. It doesn't matter. You, however much data you use, that's how much data you pay for. It's so easy. Plus, you can bring your own device. They support a ton of different devices, or... If you need a new device, just go on over here, shop their new devices. Go on over to techsnap.ting.com, then go over to their store, and you'll see a bunch of great devices. they got SIM cards there. they got the brand-new Apple iPhone 7 Plus, if that's your thing. If not, they've got a huge selection of Android phones, some budget phones. And if you you head over to techsnap.ting.com, you'll get a $25 service credit that you can apply to some of these phones. So if you want to pick up that new LG G5, $25 right off that price. It's yours. It's unlocked. There's no shenanigans. Ting does not get in the way. They don't play crazy ISP. They're not, the thing about Ting, right? They're not trying to sell you on their mobile store. They're not trying to sell you on their movie store. They're just trying to be your mobile ISP. That's it. Simple as that, right? They want to have great customer service, which they do. They want to have a great, simple, easy to use, intuitive dashboard and phone app, which they do. And they want to make it simple they want to make it make sense they want to make it easy they don't have to spend a bunch of money trying to like invest in being a media company they don't spend a bunch of money trying to invest building out the cellular networks because they're a reseller so they can really focus on their value add which is you the customer that's what makes ting different they really highlight you they understand it their parent company TwoCast, has been in this game a long time they support things like net neutrality and a lot of the other you know the thing about ting is is their nerds just like us they're cord cutters they understand that hey you know maybe you do need messages and megabytes they certainly offer them but probably you just need the megabytes right uh that's what makes ting so great beyond the flexibility beyond that it's just that ting are people like us they support the same mission we do and if you go over to techsnap.ting.com you'll get that 25 dollars service credit it makes it super easy to get started install their app install their website or if you end up having to talk to a person you'll talk to a real person who will stay on the line and do their absolute best to help you make sure that it's easy to get started? You probably already have a device that supports Ting. And if not, hey, just make it the back door, you know, the, the, the back door into your network, make it your backup phone. It's super easy to get started. And I, if you're anything like me, before long, you'll be canceling all your, other, all your other carriers and jumping on the Ting network. So thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. And you can say thank you by heading over to techsnap.ting.com. All right, that brings us to our next story today. We may have been a little smug. We were talking about WannaCry the other week. It's been going around. It turns out it's not just the Windows world. Open source is vulnerable, too. Yep. So so tell us more about this, Dan. Uh, well, is it as bad? Is it? Should we be just as worried as we have been about the WannaCry attack?
1: Well, the WannaCry attack went in through the smb port right because windows so it it seems that if i recall correctly samba is based exactly on the windows uh smb
0: right server message block or something like that
1: yeah and samba was just basically what they do is they reverse engineer the protocol so that Windows clients can just use these file servers so you don't have to use Windows servers. It's a, it's a great idea. That, that's how it works. But it, just seems, it seems that the same bug is in both. Well, it's spreading by SMB. Did this actually infect Samba or are they just talking about SMB? I didn't get the impression it was Samba. I know that we started making sure that all our Samba stuff was up to date. Did I miss something in the
0: news? I know it's an SMB worm. Oh, I see. I was looking at the wrong article here. Yes, you're right. Wait, which, so which this one? Is I... Absolutely about SMB, but there also was a uh, a Samba attack that affected the okay. open source Samba implementation.
1: Where are we? Are we? At...
0: Show me. I will find that. You keep talking about this, and I will. Uh, we'll add we'll it to keep the show going notes. about this. Yeah. yeah. Exactly.
1: Okay. So we'll cover two things here. So. This this original post was on Slashdot. And if you're ever on Slashdot, do not read the comments. You'll lose your mind. Um, so it starts off by saying researchers have detected a new worm that is spreading via SMB. But unlike the worm component of the WannaCry r- ransomware, this one is using seven NSA tools instead of two. So what's that? Three and a half times more power from the NSA? Thank you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So this one's named inter- Eternal rocks, not internal rocks, eternal rocks. The worm seems to be in a phrase where it is phase, where it is infecting victims and building its botnet, but not delivering any payload. Now, I think it was last week that we talked about how WannaCry could have been worse. And one of the things that we talked about is it infects, but it doesn't do anything. So it infects silently and then just sits there, which means when it starts to do something, you don't have much time because it's attacking all the machines at once all at the same time. So, for starters, this one uses a delayed installation process that waits 24 hours before completing the install as a way to evade sandbox environments, which means if you're a researcher, you want to see what this thing does, you put it in a sandbox, see what happens. If nothing happens after 24 hours, sometimes some inpatient people give up. Um, further, the worm uses the exact same file names as WannaCry in an attempt to fool researchers of its true origin. So basically what it's doing is it's trying to say, hey, listen, I'm just the same old thing you've always seen, but it's not. It's different. So why, so this may have been a reason why the worm evaded researchers almost all week, despite all the attention that WannaCry payloads have received. So... Some researchers didn't look close enough, but it was different. Last but not least, the worm does not have a kill switch domain like WannaCry did, which means the worm can't be stopped unless the author desires so. Because of the way it was designed, it is trivial for the worm's owner to deliver any type of malware to any of the infected computers. Unfortunately, because, one of, the, because of the way he used double pulsar implant one of the seven NASA hacking tools, other attackers can hijack this botnet, something that's already infected, and deliver their, their own malware as well. The um, Basically, there's a whole lot of stuff available in a GitHub repo if you want to learn more. Now, if we go to the original article where they're talking about this, I just want to run over some of the differences between on this and if you want it it'll be in the show notes the worm named eternal rocks is based on worm executable properties found in one sample works by using six smb centric nsa tools to infect a computer with smb ports exposed online these are eternal blue sorry eternal blue eternal champion eternal romance and eternal synergy which are SMB exploits used to compromise vulnerable computers, while SMB Touch and ArchiTouch are two NSA tools used for SMB reconnaissance operations. So, once the worm is get in it, it then installs double pulsar to propagate to, to new machines. Now, we talked about last week how could WannaCry be worse? Well, as a worm, someone must have been listening to us. I hope not. As a worm, Eternal Rocks is far less dangerous than WannaCry's worm component, as it does not deliver any malicious content. This, however, does not mean that the Eternal Rocks is less complex. Actually, it's the opposite. And then during the first stage, they say it downloads the Tor client and beacons its command and control server located on a .onion domain in the dark web. Only after a predefined period of time, which is 24 hours, does the CNC server respond. The role of this long delay is probably to bypass sandbox security testing environments and security researchers who are analyzing the worm, as very few will wait a full day. But some did. Now, Uh, Eternal Rocks then goes into the second stage, and it downloads a second-stage malware component in the form of an archive named Shatterbrokers.zip. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? The name of this file is pretty self-explanatory as it contains the NSA SMB-centric exploits leaked by the Shatterbrokers group in April of this year. The worm then starts a rapid IP scanning process and attempts to connect to random IP addresses. Um, It could pose a serious threat to computers with vulnerable SMB ports exposed to the Internet, basically because there is no kill switch and because it can download any malware that the author wishes to send to it. And the Worms author has not taken any measures to protect the double Pulsar implant which runs in a default unprotected state, meaning other threat actors could use it as a backdoor to machines infected by the eternal rocks, because sometimes malware will an in, infect a machine, patch the machine so that no one else can right. infect, infect it, and then it's theirs. It also means that if if the machine, if the malware somehow stops working or something, you can't reinfect it, but it stops someone else from reinfecting so They go on to say, there are multiple actors scanning for computers running older and unpatched versions of the SMB services. System administration administrators have already taken notice and started patching vulnerable PCs or disabling the old SMB v1 protocol, slowly reducing the number of vulnerable machines that Eternal Rocks can infect. Nonetheless, the faster system administrators patch their their systems, the better. The worm is racing with adm- admins to infect machines before they patch. Once infected, he can weaponize anytime he wants, no matter the late patch. What? That doesn't make sense. Once infected, he can weaponize any anytime he wants, no matter, oh, even if you do wind up patching. I wonder if that would be true. Yeah, once you're infected, even if it is patched, the code's still on your box. You're going to be in trouble. So now, I don't know if it's this, if it's in this one. Yes, we're going to go in the feedback. There's something about an overlooked defense against all of this. And we'll get to that in after the next ad, But this should be interesting.
0: Yeah, definitely. Okay. So I guess just to touch on what I was talking about mistakenly yes. there. Uh, so there's also been a uh, – so. As we're talking about, this is SMB, Server Message Block, uh, which is a Microsoft uh protocol. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is an open source implementation known as Samba uh, and it was Mm -hmm. just discovered that there's also a vulnerability in that. Uh, So there's Hmm. a seven-year-old Samba flaw that lets hackers access thousands of Linux PCs remotely. And it wouldn't have to just be Linux, of course. It could be anything that's using Samba. Um, So a seven-year-old critical remote code execution vulnerability has been discovered in the Samba networking software that could allow a remote attacker to take control of an affected Linux or Unix machine. Samba is an open source software that runs on the majority of operating systems available today, including Windows, Linux, Unix, IBM, System 390. It's so funny that they talk about that. And OpenVMS, all very relevant systems, of course. Um, Samba allows non-Windows operating systems like GNU Linux or Mac OS X to share network, shared folders. That's usually the most re- common reason why you'd be running Samba uh, on a, you know a Linux or Unix system. Uh, so the newly discovered remote code execution vulnerability, CVE 2017-7494, affects all versions newer than Samba 350, which was released on March 1st, 2010. All versions of Samba from 350 onwards are vulnerable, allowing a malicious client to upload a shared library to a writable share and then cause the server to load and execute it. So it really is, you know, a code execution vulnerability. Uh, it's been talked about as a Linux version Of eternal blue.
1: So, what's the date on this article?
0: Uh, The date on this article is Wednesday, May 24th, 2017.
1: Wow. I didn't hear anything about it.
0: Yeah. You know, we talked a little bit about it on today's Linux Unplugged. um, So, maybe this is something we can cover in more depth uh, next week. Yes, yeah. um, I hope so. Yeah. So it's already been bundled up into a Metasploit module. So if you want to test it, um, it's pretty easy. They've also got this article, which I'll add to the show notes here. And they've also got some tips for how to disable it if you need to. Um, so... The maintainers of Samba have already patched the issue in the newest versions 464, 4, 4. 4. 4510, 4414, and are urging those using a vulnerable version of Samba to install the patch as soon as possible. Uh, but if you can't upgrade, they also have a simple command you know configuration in your SMB.conf that you can add that will make sure that this doesn't that doesn't affect you. Now it will it may you know limit some of your interrupt with Windows systems or break some of the functionality you're using, but heck, that's a lot better than being exploited. <laughs> at least in my view so as always yep. patch your s indeed yeah uh so you can go check this out um i think you know as in a lot of times if if you're on a distro it's really easy to upgrade just follow your you know do your regular updates where i think this may bite us and we'll have to wait and see is all the embedded systems you know nas devices routers yes. anything else running yes. smb uh, samba protocols that who knows when they'll be patched and even if there is an upstream patch who knows how many end users will use it. Thankfully, at least, um, you know, Samba is usually only used on a on a local network. So you would have to, you know, you would have to have entry or be on that network to start a lot of these attacks. But
1: that doesn't save you. There's some public.
0: Yes, there are some public. I've certainly seen those or, or you know, seen those in, in place. I don't have any of those. Actually, I don't even think I have any Samba at home anymore. Thankfully, I don't, you know, I don't have any roommates or other people in my house that I share files with that way i used to do it for like movies and things but ever since plex or mb or that kind of stuff dlna there's a lot of other options so yeah i don't think i'm i think i have all. a samba
1: i think i have a samba server at home that i sometimes connect to from my laptop but i hardly ever use it yeah rarely
0: yeah and these days there's like you know other solutions you might use something like sync thing or other options if you yeah. don't need the the exact yeah. kind of functionality that uh, samba provides
1: to get to my samba server you have to get on the wireless and then you have to get on the vpn.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So yeah, it's not that easy.
0: All right, uh anything else you would like to add about samba smb mm-hmm. or any of these vulnerabilities? No. Okay. Well, that brings us to our final advertisement this evening and that's our friends over at IX Systems. If you're looking for a NAS vendor who takes security seriously, look no further than IX Systems. They're the hardware provider that you wish you'd learned about years ago. Go over to iosystems.com slash techsnap. There, you'll find the ultimate guide to buying a new server for open source. So whether you need a new custom server for your small business, you just need a new you know, NAS or backup machine for your small office, or heck, you just want a new machine for home, a, a desktop, a server, um, free NAS Mini, they've got it all at Ix Systems. They've worked with all their awesome hardware hardware providers especially those amazing intel processors to build custom solutions that meet exactly your needs gone are the days where you have to go online and buy from some big box store you're not quite sure hey is this gonna work for me does this meet my needs am i getting a good deal here oh what about expandability can i put this card in that or how many hard drives does this support i'm not sure if that'll work no call up ix systems they've got a team of super talented sales engineers standing by ready to talk to you and they The difference with Systems is they're there to form a partnership with you. They understand that your business, your use case, it's unique, it's special, and you deserve a custom server to go with it. Head on over to iXsystems.com slash TechSnap. Go check out some of the awesome people that they work with. You'll see what I'm talking about, right? Right there on their homepage, it it, it really just, just says it. I mean, Sony, Disney, Yelp, Evernote, NASA, Berkeley. They work with some of the biggest names in these businesses. People with really big data requirements. Right, we're talking about petabytes here. So whether it's just you know a FreeNAS mini, mini, which is awesome, the FreeNAS software is great. It runs on rock solid FreeBSD, and you can be sure that anytime there are these vulnerabilities, they've got patches already in place, ready to update, auto updating in the background. All of that. They really take security seriously. If you have bigger needs than that, check out the TrueNAS system. Or hey, maybe you're going to go crazy. You're really jealous of Dan's rack. I know I am go pick up a true a true rack right there this is the kind of enterprise ready storage a powerful flexible rack scale architecture that takes the guesswork out of building large-scale data center applications if you you know whether whether you're the person responsible for this you know the person in your organization it's really worth taking the time to go check out ix systems there's a lot of hardware providers out there a lot of resellers a lot of people who are going to sell you the latest you know brand x server at a discount or blah 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 with this support package But, you know, they're not really in that same game. They're not the experts. They're really just reselling things. They don't have the passion that iX Systems has. iX Systems has been in this game for a long time. They really understand the hardware they're selling. They really spend a lot of time working to make sure their systems are rock solid. Just listen to some of the people who use it. You know, you'll hear these awesome stories about first-class support, about, hey, this hard drive didn't work. Yeah, they'll ship you a replacement, you know, right away. They'll make sure that your problems are met. They'll make sure that you really have a great experience. And they do the kind of white glove service that you just don't get anywhere else. You know, they do burn-in testing. They make sure that, hey, we're shipping your system, we've run it, we've run our tests on it, we've made sure that if that hard drive's gonna fail, it's gonna fail before we ship it to you. Plus, you can get it all configured. They know, they know FreeBSD, they know Linux, they understand these systems. You can get it configured right to your spec, ready to ship, shipped right to your data center, racked up, plugged in, and bam, you've got a new server running so don't waste any time don't have hassle with all these big brand name vendors check out ix systems check out their awesome custom solutions and go be part of their community go check out the ix systems blog they've always got a ton of stuff you'll see them at at lots of different conferences i'm sure they'll be at bsd can here in a week right right Dan. Yep, I'll be here. Um, yeah, exactly. And you can check out all their, like here they're talking about uh, Veeam On, the Veeam On conference. They're talking about combating WannaCry and other ransomware with OpenZFS snapshots. Hey, that's a great way to do it. Uh, Kansas Linux Fest. It really goes to show that Ix Systems is part of the community. They understand open source. They understand Linux and FreeBSD. And they're they're not just trying to make money off of it. They're part of the community. So go get started. Go find out what I'm talking about. Ix Systems. Dot com slash techsnap and thank you to iX Systems for sponsoring the TechSnap program and that brings us to this week's feedback segment the time in the show where we take time to uh, hear from you our wonderful audience but first this week Dan's got a little something to say so Dan you were telling me a little bit about you know we we talk about ting here on the show. Uh, mm-hmm. And you had a little bit of personal experience or possibly in the future? No, no, not quite. Um, excuse
1: me. <clears throat> um, f- a guy I know, Peter Lasher, uh, he used to be at BST Can a lot more. He, uh, he's now working for ISC, I think. Uh, he's the guy that, that I saw was on T-Mobile, and he's the guy that, talking with him, it's how I made the jump from AT&T to T-Mobile. And I'm happy with T-Mobile. Especially with the tethering that I get off the phone and the okay. decent package I get up here in Canada while I'm here, um, but he has since gone to Ting, and he recently mentioned that Ting now has now has been validated for Apple voicemail and oh. something something. It, it was one of the things that that. Um, Held me back from considering going on to Tang. But you might also recall a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that I I got a hotspot, a Wi Fi hotspot from the Calix. Yes,
0: I do. And I've been jealous of it ever since.
1: Well, I haven't really gotten to use it in anger yet because shortly after (laughs) I got it, I came up here. But what it is, is it's just a little hotspot that you carry around with you and it it puts out a Wi Fi signal and then it connects through to LTE. Um, so it got me thinking that if I use no data on my phone and my phone connected to that all the time and always did Wi-Fi over that, I could drop my data on Ting to zero and just use the Calix all the time, which is now a fixed cost for the next year anyway, because I've paid for it for the, for the coming year. So now I'm seriously considering at converting over to Ting and just using the Sprint network instead of the T-Mobile network, and I don't know how much difference there is between the two. Someone will tell me. Someone will write in and tell us. Did you know the quickest way to find the answer on the internet?
0: Yes, I do. Just make make sure that you've said something wrong, and you'll get corrected almost instantaneously. That's it. Some people say it may even violate the laws of physics, but I'm not so sure about that.
1: So what you do is you create yourself two accounts. One account, ask a question. Second account, give the wrong answer.
0: Oh, that's amazing.
1: And then you'll get the right answer very quickly.
0: These are your TechSnap troll tips. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's enough of that. I say let's just jump right into our feedback segment as regularly scheduled. So first up, we've got a letter from Michael Horowitz. Michael writes to us about WannaCry, an overlooked defense there are three defenses against WannaCry and whatever other malware is looking to exploit the Windows flaw in SMB version one. But people are only talking about two of them. Install the patch and or remove slash disable SMB v1. However, the Windows firewall also protects against LAN side attacked. And he points us to his blog article right here. Awesome. Thank you, Michael. I have not checked this out, but uh, we'll definitely make sure it's in the show notes. Uh, We can go check that out right here. Uh, Here he's talking about defensive computing. The Windows Firewall is the overlooked defense against WannaCry and IdleCuz. I don't know if I've said that correctly, but I tried. What did you think about this, Dan?
1: Yep, Um, this this makes sense. And yes, you should have things firewalled off that you're not using. And you definitely shouldn't be reachable from the internet on your Samba server. There are very small uh use cases very few use cases for you having samba on the internet and this is not one of them so yeah this is a good idea but patch if everyone who was unpatched had this thing firewalled off they wouldn't they wouldn't have been infected so yes D- defense in depth patch firewall authenticate all those things? Yeah. It's really what you should be doing anyway.
0: Exactly right. As we talk about a you know a number of times on this show and the past show is that a lot of these exploits end up you know relying on multiple failures. You know it's not it, mm-hmm. it's not just one thing happening. It's that they that that failed and they were able to get local system access and then they have an exploit to get to root and then they can take over your system or or whatever. So defense in depth really is key here. So thank you, Michael, for writing in. I think that's a great yes. that's a great blog post and yes. uh, our viewers should go become readers of his. mm Hmm. Awesome. Okay, so up next, we've got a letter from Clifford. Clifford writes to us about some feedback on why no autofill for password managers. Hey guys, on episode 319, a listener asked about reasons not to use autofill. I figured I'd offer up the following concrete example. When I was involved in penetration testing, one of the first things we would do uh, on a full graph assignment after getting a toehold into a network was force all web traffic through our own transparent proxy. With this, we could inject extra bits of JavaScript code that would auto-submit form data in the background without user interaction. In the good old days, we could force downgrade HTTPS connections to weak ciphers or just drop HTTPS altogether. Combine that with hidden iframes and pop-unders to automatically open the top 50 banking websites, top 100 social media sites, etc., and we'd snarf up usernames, passwords for just about every user who had autofill turned on. The booty was even sweeter when we got into networks that forced clients to install a campus CA into the host's root store. Oh, yeah, that's always trouble. We could mint certs on the fly for just about any site and not have to worry about downgrading the connection. It would look totally legitimate until someone clicked on the little green padlock and wondered why a cert for Super Mega Bank was issued by the people who signed my checks. Just my two pence. Love the show. Keep up the good work. Awesome. Thank you for the feedback, Clifford. And yeah, I mean, I think this does kind of touch on on some of those things. Uh, there's various security mechanisms in place, uh, you know, with these password managers so that you have to, you know, maybe have to interact with the plugin or other things. But as always, the easier it is, you know, the more convenience you have, then just almost by necessity, the more at risk you are. If you don't need that convenience, if you have the technical sophistication to go without that convenience, it may be in your security interest to do so. What do you think, Dan?
1: I I agree. Don't don't autofill. Don't be doing this.
0: Yeah, exactly. It doesn't
1: make any sense at all.
0: And I mean, I get it if it's super convenient and stuff. And most of these, you know, 1Password, LastPass, they have a reasonable security um, histories. They've done a good job of using good ciphers on mm-hmm. the back end, yep. making sure things are actually encrypted, using good encryption methods. So, you know, it's not it's not the end of the world. But as, as we just talked about defense in depth, yeah. uh, if you don't need it, you know, try to limit the, the simpler systems that you can have the easier they understand, the easier your threat model is to understand, and you'll be better off.
1: Your your convenience is not having to remember the password. Not, not that you avoid finding your password, clicking, copying, and pasting. That's j- Just do that, and you'll be a lot better off than autofill. Yeah. Way better off.
0: <laughs> exactly. Hey, and that touches on our next piece of feedback right here. Uh, Lewis writes in about the same topic, browser autofill exploit. Hello, Dan and Wes. Hello, Louis Or Louise. I think that's actually what it is. Last or previous episode, Dan mentioned he didn't like the autofill in the browser. I found this link, and I guess you would appreciate this information. Probably nothing new to you. Love the show. Louise. Okay, let's take a look here at what he's got for us. It looks like he's got something over at techexplore.com. Let's pop that open. So.
1: Basically, what this is 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 similar to what they mentioned in in the previous feedback. It's a hidden form, and basically, it tricks your um, your plugin into thinking, "Oh, I know this form; I'll just fill it in." So, basically, what they what the forms do is they say they they look for stuff that they recognize and then fill it in. But it's easy enough to fake that. All you do is you log into an existing banking site. File save the HTML page, and there you've got the start of the hidden form that you want to fill.
0: Yeah, and this kind of goes, um, you know, especially a lot of these sites, the banking ones in particular, as we've talked about, are frequently, you know, they've got some technical debt, they've got older systems in place, so it should even be easier a lot of these times to, to replicate that. They're using probably old-style forms. They're not using any kind of fancy mitigation techniques in a lot of cases, so yikes. Yeah, that's that's dangerous. And this is exactly, I think, the kind of concrete example that we were you know, alluding to if not actually directly referencing. So uh that's great. I really appreciate having the the direct example. And it does go to show, you know, it is fairly easy to to cause these kinds of problems. And then that's it, right? All all the security you were using from your password yep. manager right out the window. Yep. I <sighs> wouldn't do it. Don't yeah. do it. Follow Dan's advice, everyone. That's just, D- that's disa- just
1: disable autofill not only on your browser, but in your password um tool as well disable it in both I, I know that one is sort of related to the other but don't do autofill anywhere
0: exactly okay well i guess that brings us to our final piece of feedback this week <laughs> and that's some advice for dan uh it, it comes from our friend peter and he writes dvl might want to remove the WebRing link. So uh, DBL might want to remove the WebRing from RacingSystem.com and then mm-hmm. he provides us with this image. Yep. Uh-oh. Yep. Let's just pop that up bigger. Looks like that site contains malware.
1: I'm I'm not surprised. I bet the WebRing.org fell, fell into not being used It got abandoned. Someone snapped it up and Lo and behold, there's all these sites linking to it, and people are clicking in because all the web ring web ring links still sit on sites like this.
0: Yeah. So I I was brave and I did not get it flagged for for malware. I just went to rebwing.org, and this is what it looks like. Explore your hobbies, interests, and more. Yeah. Yeah. So it looks kind of kind of like garbage, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah, it's crap. Which is too bad, but it's, but.
1: It's not at all related to what it used to be. (laughs) Yeah. So I I went in and I cleaned up two different pages within the website. Um, I think this web page dates back to around 2009, something like that. I think that's when I started it. I'm not sure. I really do not remember.
0: It's long long enough ago, I think, that you can be forgiven for a a little forgetfulness.
1: Mm. Mm. But yes, it's been patched now. Thank you
0: exactly awesome so that that wraps up today's feedback segment but it also highlights exactly why that's maybe our favorite segment we get to hear from you our wonderful audience and turns out like half the topics of the show come from the feedback and we get a bunch of great tips so keep it up please write to us you can go over to to come or jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact or you can find us both on twitter stay tuned for those addresses and uh, coming up next we've got the roundup And that brings us to the final segment of today's show. That's right. It's everyone's favorite. It's the Roundup. What do you have for us this week, Dan? Well,
1: I think Chris mentioned this one. Oh, great. He put this in the internal channel. And he... he, Was it Chris or Rikai? Sorry if I got that wrong. But uh, they basically said, is this the new normal? Where you see uh, a Windows XP update coming and you're wondering, oh... Some more shadow broker stuff coming. You don't think, oh, what are they patched? You're wondering, is there more horrible stuff that the NSA created, which is now out in the wild? But that's what uh, this post basically talks about. Because it says right here, a security issue has been identified that could allow an unauthenticated, unauthenticated local attacker to compromise your system and gain control over it. Just what everybody needs on a Friday.
0: Exactly. Ugh, yikes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's hard to not, you know, now, after all that's happened this past couple of years, that's kind of exactly what you think when you see news like that. You're like, okay, well, where did this come from? And it's almost certainly been stockpiled. Mm-hmm. And what's the fallout going to be? Well, it,
1: it, I remember... I remember we said it. We said it on air. We said it when the FBI was demanding that Apple create a tool that would break in. I'm sorry, that was one of the posts what that we had
0: coming links. Did you hear it? Yes, I did. Yep. Cool. That was horrible. <laughs> that snuck right in there. I thought it was you at first. Yeah, me too. I was like, okay, what's happening? What? Well, what have I
1: done? Yeah. What have I done? Okay, I hate autoplay. Why uh, are you autoplaying?
0: Autoplay is the worst.
1: So, um, where was I? Yes, I remember when the FBI was, was trying to encourage Apple to build a tool that would help it break into Apple's. And they refused to. And we said at the time, if you create a tool like this, it's going to get out in the open. And look, the NSA, one of the most, arguably, one of the most secretive organizations in the world, they couldn't retain all their secret tools of mass destruction in there. It got out. You can't keep anything secret like that for any length of time. So if you're just asking for trouble once you create something like that, it's going to fall into the wrong hands as opposed to just your hands.
0: Right, exactly. That's what we see over and over again is, you know, once you've made it, it's really like a Pandora's box and that box gets opened and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you have no more control over what it gets used for. So I guess that takes us right into our next story. Oh, wait,
1: wait, 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 wait. Oh, no. Jumping back to what Theresa May says. Look, look, we're just going to keep this here in case we need it. Right. We're not going to actually look at it or do anything. We're just going to have this here in case we need yes. it. What's going to happen? Criminals are going to find their way into it. Third parties are going to find their way into it. It's all going to become public sooner or later. Yeah. And the only thing that will cause a huge uproar is, is if some politician's private details get released, and then maybe the politicians will try and reverse it. By then, all the data is gone. All the so. data
0: is gone already. The you know the criminals already have the access to the tools at that point. Yeah, cats out they of the bag. They have bank. the
1: personal information that they need to steal to do identity theft, stuff like that. It's gone. that once it's gone, it's gone.
0: Exactly. Okay. Well, now that takes us right into the next story today. Congress introduces a bill to stop the U.S. from stockpiling cyber weapons. The bill would ensure that all software and hardware vulnerabilities in the U.S. government's possession are properly reviewed in an effort to avoid a similar mass leak of NSA hacking tools and cyber weapons. This sounds like a good thing for once in the roundup.
1: Yeah, I'm not so sure. I think it should just be government policy. Yeah. I, I don't think legislating it is the right thing to do. Who's going to review it? Who's going to decide? I mean, we know it's it's wrong. It's not a good idea. But how, how who's going to be on this board and decide, well, we'll keep this, we'll not keep that? And how are they going to keep it secret?
0: Yes, it does raise like larger issues of what's the process going to be. The so-called Protecting Our Ability to Counter Hacking Act, or Patch Act—okay, I do like the name, that is kind of uh, funny—would force the government to turn over its stockpile of undisclosed zero-day exploits that it uses to target computers and networks for surveillance to a newly established independent technical review board. Lawmakers hope that the secret hardware and software vulnerabilities can be made public and fixed. It is essential that government agencies make zero-day vulnerabilities known to vendors whenever possible, and the Patch Act requires the government to swiftly balance the need to disclose vulnerabilities with other national security interests while increasing transparency and accountability to maintain public trust in the process. So those sound like good things, but I think you're right that there are some implementation details that we need to get right here. Um, It could quickly not be very effective or not worthwhile and spoil the kind of goodwill that they're trying to to generate here if they do it poorly. So, yeah. Yeah, you know, it shouldn't necessarily be this, like, handed down, slap on the wrist mandate. It needs to make sure that it's, you know, that the people who are in charge of this, the people who day to day are using these attacks, um, you know, that it's really instilled in the culture and the process and not just some high up rule.
1: I don't think there's any way to stop governments from wanting to do this sort of stuff. It, it It's spycraft is what it boils down to.
0: Right. I mean, that's kind of ingrained in their institutions is anytime you can get an information advantage over an enemy or an opponent, you're kind of obligated to Mm -hmm. do so. You never Mm -hmm. know when it will be useful down the road.
1: Yeah.
0: Interesting. Well, we'll have to... I'm sure that will come back up on future episodes of this program. Yes. Next up in the roundup, uh, this is an interesting article from, uh, I guess, a paper from Symantec about the increased use of PowerShell in attacks.
1: And... Correct me if I'm wrong, but um, PowerShell is the new. Is it a Bash shell that's now available on Windows boxes?
0: Uh, no, it's kind of actually the reverse. It's a Windows shell that's now somewhat open source and runs. <laughs> and, and you may be able to run it on Linux, or at least it supports it. You know, it interfaces with the .NET runtime, which is now open source. Uh, so PowerShell is that is the newer shell on Windows. It's not like the old, you know, command prompt. Um, yeah. It's basically a shell that has those features as well as interfaces with the .NET runtime. So you get lots of uh, fancy internal Windows features.
1: So it, it is a new shell, but it's not like Bash or anything.
0: Correct. It has its already very own in existence. peculiar okay. syntax. Yep. It is interesting yep. and powerful. It has kind of an object-oriented... Um, approach to a shell. So instead of piping text, you actually do, you know, you kind of share objects between systems. So there are a lot of things that I I find interesting from a technical perspective, um, but it does not have the same familiar Bash semantics.
1: What I'm wondering is why they, you know, if you take a long enough period, of course it's increased because people have only started using it and it's installed so they're going to use it. I don't find it surprising that there's more of them. I am sur- would be surprised if, if it wasn't being used. Shell scripting is a very powerful language.
0: Right, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, Power, as they talk about here, PowerShell is installed by default on Windows computers and leaves few mm-hmm. traces for analysis. And organizations often don't enable monitoring or extended logging on their computers, making these PowerShell threats harder to detect. Hmm. Um, yeah, and I mean, I think PowerShell is also pretty... pretty um, powerful you might say uh, in that uh-huh. you can do you know it really has to its credit it's done a lot to increase the automation of windows i think because there's a lot of oh, features yes. that you used to only be able to do yes. through a gui that now oh, you know, yes. PowerShell can actually do but the flip side of that is that now you can control all those you know once you've got you know malicious access you can toggle all those switches as well
1: uh c- command line rules it really does exactly
0: yes the command line rules that's uh that's where you get real work done take note kitties
1: Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm
0: all right up to our next article today (laughs) chipotle says most of its restaurants were infected with credit card stealing malware Uh uh-oh wow i'm I'm
1: trying that's scary i'm I'm trying to think of some kind of a pun you know burritos or something i just i i can't think of one but Bang suggests something with uh, burritos or something like that about this. But th- th- this was interesting. What, what I find interesting here is is that they're saying the details are out. Um, they actually have a website that you can go to. And what I find interesting about this website is when you go there, you can say, OK, I've been to this store. I know I've been to this store. And they'll tell you the time at which that store was infected.
0: Oh, wow. Look at that. That's and handy.
1: that is very nice. Yeah, that's that some is,
0: real information for you know people who are yeah, worried about themselves.
1: They're 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 not giving you a list of all the stores and saying wh- where they were when they when and where they were infected. They're just saying, okay, if you've been to a store, you can come here and find out if you happen to go there at a time that it was infected. I don't think I've ever seen that from any other. Here's an um,
0: example, I just put in some of my information there. And uh, did yeah, you? here's a list of stores did that you? were affected and the dates that they were affected. So hopefully you could then go, you know, if you paid with credit card, you could go cross-reference your bill, see if you were at one of those restaurants at the time that it was infected. Oh um, yeah, right. yeah, 212 Westlake Avenue. I think that is the one near me. Thankfully, I have not been there for quite some yep. time. So I think I should be safe, but I'm going to go check anyway.
1: Yeah, it, it's wonderful. I've been, I'm sure I've not been been to chipotle at all this year so it's wonderful yeah but it's it's wonderful that they're they're doing this sort of uh what do you call this type of
0: disclosure yeah it really is you know responsible disclosure a lot of companies you know I'm, i'm sure it's very embarrassing you feel bad you don't want your customers to be turned away or no longer visit your store but i think this is kind of the you know this is the mature move where you're saying yes maybe it will make some customers turn away but i think. You know, for informed consumers, people who are thinking in the long game, yes. I'm actually more encouraged to go there because I know if they do have a breach, they will actually mm-hmm. be responsible and disclose that information to me.
1: Now, um, not all locations have been identified, but it's a starting point. And I'd recommend anyone, everyone, to uh, put a security free, uh, a freeze on your credit. Uh, yes. What is it? Credit uh, Credit score? Freeze your credit score? It doesn't cost much to do it. And it means that if anyone tries to take out a credit card or something, yes. they can't get a, what what do they call it, credit check, credit score?
0: Yeah. It, it really check. prevents a lot of those, you yeah. know, small things that people can do instead of, like, doing a bunch of checks on your credit yep. or trying to take out additional cards in your name. Um, without, without lifting the freeze, they won't be able to do that. It is, you know— it is something you have to be aware of if you do that, especially if you're going to be moving or applying for a loan or other things. You will mm-hmm. have to lift those freezes. But I think it's it's one of the small it's, measures you can take that is yeah. well worth it.
1: I've done that recently. <sighs> yeah, I did that recently. And it was a bit of an inconvenience. It is, yeah. But, uh, the companies that, that make these credit checks are used to doing this and used to dealing um, – encountering uh, a frozen account, and they just said, hey, listen, can you do this? Get back to us. Let us know when it's unfrozen. Yeah. And I did.
0: The biggest thing and, I think in, in my experience is make sure once you do it, they usually give you like a PIN code or a security code yes. so that you can undo it. Make sure you write that down, store it securely, get it backed up because otherwise it can be a big pain trying to go through the, the hoops to get it unlocked if you don't have that. Put it in your
1: password manager.
0: Exactly. See how this just comes full circle? Mm-hmm. I guess full circle indeed, uh, we're up to our final roundup story this week. Yes, we are. Comcast tries to censor pro-net neutrality website calling for the investigation of fake FCC comments, potentially funded by the cable lobby.
1: So, Fight for the Future received a cease and desist order from Comcast attorneys for our site, ComcastroTurf. Now, some background here. ComcastroTurf... Uh, refers to astroturf, and astroturfing is sort of the opposite of grassroots. You hear the the term grassroots revolution or grassroots movement and stuff like that, uh, and it refers to people, ordinary people, banding together and deciding that they want to do something, that they want to change something. Well, astroturf is a pun on that, or a pun. Yeah, a pun or irony, basically where it's not individuals. It's some corporation or actor behind it that decides to pretend that something is grassroots. And so ComcastroTurf, they're taking the – sorry, Fight for the Future has decided that there are so many FCC submissions which were fake. Uh, We talked about that in the last episode of the previous episode. I cannot remember which. One of those two one of those two. And basically you can see the graph of, of, of how all the fake submissions looked. So anyway. Yeah. It's kind of ironic that in in if net neutrality you know, there's no reason for them to do this. What what they're trying to trying to say here is that it's a what was it? a cease and desist pro because it violates Comcast's natural intellectual property. No, it doesn't. This is called satire, and satire is perfectly within the realms. Uh, What what did they actually say? I say it's satire, but I think they said, uh, "No, I don't see it." Companies like Comcast have a long history of funding shady astroturfing operations, like the one we are trying to expose with Comcastroturf.com, and also a long history of engaging in censorship. This is a perfect example of why we need bright-line net neutrality rules that protect our free speech and why we can't just trust internet service providers to behave when they've abused their power time and time again. So, mind you, they could have just blocked it entirely from all of their networks, but they didn't.
0: Yeah, they so could have. They could but have. They definitely They, could they have. didn't.
1: Yeah. They filed a cease and desist order, which is the proper way to do this. Yeah, But no, they don't have a hope because... Nothing Nothing here is trying to appear like it's Comcra- Comcast. Comcastroturf is a very interesting pun.
0: <laughs> yes, it is. And and perhaps there would have been less trouble if it was, a, you know, a less of a play on words type name that wasn't so similar to Comcast. I can see where they might have some like trademark issues. But, yeah, it really does seem to be um, fair use and yeah. you know, fair public discussion of this issue. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens here. Maybe we can follow up on a future show.
1: Yeah. L- looking briefly at the page, nothing mentions Comcast at all on there.
0: Right. And it's certainly not trying to pretend that it is Comcast, that it competes with Comcast, no. or provides any of the similar services.
1: Yeah. Oh, they do mention Comcast. If companies like Comcast are funding this type of – you know, there's no allegation. It just says if they are funding it. So, yeah, okay.
0: Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, anything else you would like to add before we wrap up today's show?
1: Mm, make sure elected representatives know that you're against uh, – your, well, let them know your position on net neutrality.
0: Exactly. Help democracy work, everyone. Awesome. All right. Well, that wraps up today's roundup and that wraps up today's show. This has been episode 321 of the Tech Snap program. It was streamed live on May 30th, 2017. If you'd like to find more of us, you can head over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. There you'll find the show's archives, you'll find a contact form, and a calendar that'll tell us when we're live. It's a lot of fun to come join us live. You can hang out in the IRC room, or just watch the live stream. If you'd like to talk with us more, there's the contact page, as I mentioned, or techsnap.reddit.com, and you can find both of us on the Twitterverse. I'm at Wes Payne, and he is at techsnap underscore Dan. Thank you That's very much me. for joining us here, and uh, we look forward to seeing you on the next episode. So make sure we you come back and patch your shit,
1: patch away.
0: Bye.